0: As-salamu alaykum Amna. Waalaikumsalam. Thank you for joining us on the Progeny podcast uh, um, on our third season. Um, I want to start by asking you about mental health. Mm. Why did you choose to go down this path in your career?
1: That's a really good question. So, of course, I'm a doctor, and my early career started in pediatrics, so mm-hmm. very much a focus on physical health, I guess. But then I realized that I was always much more interested in the emotions and in the processes and in the systems behind illness rather than just the physical illness itself. So I remember when I was actually pregnant with my first child Mm -hmm. and I was, you know, quite advanced pregnancy in paediatrics and we had a really unfortunate case come in of a young child who had actually drowned in the bathtub And, uh, you know, resuscitation and all of the um, medical processes that need to take place were very much focused on. And then I found myself just thinking about that family for days afterwards, for weeks afterwards, for years afterwards. Wow. And really thinking about, you know, where they must be at right now, how they must be doing. And I think it just made me realize that I'm so much more interested in the stories And in the, you know, the humans behind the illness. That's probably where my interest in mental health started. And then, of course, Alhamdulillah, I had the opportunity to start working in Iraq. And over there, you know, we have so many fantastic um, doctors in Iraq. And so physical physical health care is somewhat catered for. But the mental health care was really lacking. And that's why I chose to spend a bit more time there.
0: Um, There's a real stigma around mental health you mentioned Iraq in our communities um, there's you know we we need to change that because it's not spoken about a lot uh, and within our communities uh, and then hopefully we'll get to, to child mental health as well inshallah but how do we break that sort of stigma that exists or have you tried to break that I'm sure you have tried to break that stigma that exists with regards to mental health in Iraq because we generally concentrate on physical health no one sort of speaks about mental health uh, especially in the previous generations if, if, if there's something mm. you, you'd, you'd be called crazy this uh, mm. is where we come from mm. they use the words Khabbal mm has that sort of when you first went into Iraq did you see the stigma or and how did you try and break that
1: yeah so stigma is a really big thing when it comes to mental health not just in Iraq I mean even if you look at you know the UK Mm
0: -hmm.
1: if you look at um, you know other very highly developed countries mental health still is incredibly stigmatized I'd say it's only been in the last maybe two three or four years when there's been so much more royal attention for the topics of mental health and you know patronage of particular mental health charities that it's really become on people's agenda and people have been speaking about it more so if that's in the uk then i think it's you know no surprise to hear that mental health is also incredibly stigmatized in iraq there are many cases of families where In the organisation we work with, you know, people are suffering. They've been diagnosed with particular mental health conditions, and there is help and therapy that is needed and available for them, but they won't attend, Mm. or they'll attend one session and drop out, or they, um, you know, their families won't allow them to attend. And it's as you said, because of that stigma. And um, there are lots of ways to break it down. So one of the things that we've done, for example is role modeling. So, you know, you've done it so well on your podcast in previous episodes where you've had people speak about their own mental health struggles. Their own
0: experience, yeah.
1: And um, we've had lots of recent, you know, high-profile examples of that in our community. And that slowly, slowly starts to break down the stigma. In the same way that there's no shame in being diabetic Uh or having high blood pressure, then what's the shame in having anxiety or depression or any other mental health condition? So we've done that in Iraq. Um, I was really surprised recently to have been in a meeting with quite a senior manager in the organization and I was talking to him about mental health and he said, can I sign up? I want to be the first patient in in the clinics. And so, you know, people talking about their own struggles is a really great way to slightly destigmatize it. And then the other thing is to really incorporate it as part of holistic care, you know, mental health hospitals no longer are these asylums, you know, these scary buildings and isolated places. Mental health needs to be in the community, in places that are really accessible, in places that people don't feel embarrassed to go to so that they, you know, are able to access the care when needed. And so those are two of the ways that I think slowly we'll tackle you the mentioned,
0: stigma. You mentioned your, your work in, in the organization. I'm guessing you're talking about Al Ain. Yes, yes. How Al-Ain. did you get to start working with Al Ain? How long have you been working there now?
1: That's such a good question. So it's exactly um, nine years. Okay. And the reason I know that very accurately is because my husband started working in Al Ain before I did. Okay, And as you know, you know, there are organizations that when you work with them, they become part of your blood, they become part of your family. Story
0: of my life. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> That's why I'm smiling. And they take up increasing amounts of your time and All effort. your time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how my husband started in Al first. I wasn't involved and I was starting to become slightly annoyed at the amount of time that it was taking from his life. And then he said, you know, why don't you join? Like, why don't you become a part of it? Like rather than fight against it, come and join it. And then it could be our, you know, our shared thing to do. And that's funnily enough how I first started with oh. Al Ain. On some, you know, simple campaigns to collect toys and distribute them to children in Iraq. And alhamdulillah, slowly, slowly, you know, my love and passion for it grew. My skill set evolved and, yeah, I took on larger roles within the charity. But it was nine years and I remember that well because it started when I was on maternity leave with my son.
0: Okay, everything, mashallah, is related with with your children as well. Because the first story you mentioned you oh, with you or pregnant with you, and then now it's with your son. So it's, it's nice. In in the olden days, if you ask someone like, "When is this?" is like a side thing. When 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 was this person born? They'd say, "When I when I done an this." They, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they'd relate it to. So Subhanallah, you've put your children as um Yeah, no, they're God absolutely
1: an anchor in my life.
0: And so. and you worked on um, different projects. Can you maybe? Tell us about maybe, I don't know, the projects that you worked in, like the Hikayati, the STARS yeah. projects, um, a bit more about those projects, maybe? Yeah,
1: no, I'd love to tell you about them. Because as I said, it's such a big part of my life. It's so, part of you um, now. is um, a center in Negev. It's this amazing purpose-built center in Negev where orphan children go and undertake courses Mm. and workshops in personal development, resilience building, uh, confidence building, communication skills, um, anti-bullying, friendships, leadership skills. So all the soft skills that are really, really important for life. You know, I know that academia and academics only takes you so much Uh so far. And all of these soft skills are so incredibly important. So that's one of the things that Hikaiti does is it provides those skills to the children. And then it also provides really intensive mentoring. So all the children are allocated a mentor who they spend the initial six week course with, but then they're also mentored on a monthly basis going forward. And that mentorship is really powerful because we're talking about children who've lost their fathers. They're all orphan children. And as we all know, you know, the role of a mother or father, yes, it's to clothe you and feed you and provide you with a house, but Mm. that's the basics. Like where they really bring their value, like where a parent makes a difference is in that support you provide your children, the motivation, the advice. You know, the, the fact that there's always someone who really cares about you and that's what we want to do with our sure. mentors. So that's Hikaiety. It's been in the planning since 2018. Wow. It opened its doors to the children in December, 2021. Okay. So we've been going for about six months and it's been amazing. So we've had about a hundred children now complete our program and, uh, hundred orphans, obviously. Yeah, 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 all orphan children Um, complete our program. And we've had some really beautiful results. Children who have returned to school after having dropped out of school. Children where, you know, we've discovered difficult physical or mental health conditions where we've been able to help them and put in, you know, packages of support. And just lots and lots of children who've, you know, felt, like a child again for the uh-huh. first time in a long time so that's been that's Haqaiya too and that's that's my third child okay my son. <laughs> and um, and your fourth child and my fourth child <laughs> is the Enjim zahira so the Luminous Star Stars Center. Yeah. This is El Ain's mental health clinic. So uh-huh. the one that's currently up and running is in Kadmia. Uh-huh. It's been up and running for many years, and they see a whole host of um, mental health conditions. So anxiety, OCD, depression, um, even, you know, um, self-harming, suicidality, the whole range of mental health conditions. And they have a small team of therapists. And then they also have a small team of psychiatrists. And they're able to provide really good levels of care for their patients. So that's been running for the last few years. And we now want to expand into 12 other locations in Iraq. Okay. So that's my role, trying to work out the the training, the development, the protocol, you know, formulation for all of these centers. Is there a
0: time scale for when these 12 will hopefully open their doors?
1: Yeah. So um, in Ramadan, Ramadan just gone, the fundraising for the centers was completed. And they are all at different stages of building. So mm-hmm. some of them, like the land has been bought, some of them are the, you know, skeleton of the building has been um, completed. Some of them are very close to completion. So I would say, you know, they're all at different stages of their um, production. However, they're all going to be opened, inshallah, in the next
0: few years. Inshallah. From the outside, again, this is because I'm not involved, maybe within Al Ain itself directly. Um, and maybe even with other projects in Iraq, everything seems very slow. To the people that don't know how it works in Iraq, they'll they'll say, you know, this is too slow. Things are, you know, they're not progressing as. And not just with the line, with a lot of projects mm-hmm. that take place in Iraq, people have this uh, criticism that they are very slow. Uh, someone who's involved with the work of Al Ain, what would you say that, you know, to, to someone that says everything's so slow?
1: Mm. I'd say that that's not been my experience of it. Okay. I mean, of course, large scale projects are always going to take time, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Like the planning, the funding, the building, and you want everything to be correct. You want everything to be up to standard. And so naturally it's going to take time. And I always think again, even with the, you know, even in the UK, do you remember when the Millennium Dome was being built? Mm-hmm. How much how longer yep. and how much more budget it required? Or now with the, um, you know, the high speed rail um, between Birmingham and London, all these large projects take time, and it's natural. And I think, you know, so many of my friends and um, also older family friends have tried to work in Iraq. And have gone full of passion and energy and, and come have back come back emotivated. really deflated yeah. Yeah, a few weeks or months later. And I always say that it's so important to go with that spirit of optimism, but also that spirit of humility. You mm-hmm. know, I'd say that's why I've really enjoyed working there and why I've managed to continue working there for a few years is because I go wanting to learn wanting to really benefit from the local expertise, um, not criticising or comparing all the time, and also just, you know, really trying to do things in partnership rather than Going as this external expert because that that just gets people's backs up, doesn't it? And so yeah, I think the more positive and optimistic we can be about Iraq, the better the results will be. Like, let's not forget, you know, it's a country that's emerging after thirty-five years of trauma. Yeah, like the trauma is ongoing. Like, I am impressed that this stuff is even happening, let alone concerned that it may be slightly slower than
0: schedule. Um. I'm sure there's a lot of challenges Mm. when coming to working in Iraq specifically. Mm. Maybe Al Ain here in the UK, there's less challenges because maybe there's not much of a culture difference when you work. But when you go to Iraq, there's the difference of culture. There's the male-dominated environment Mm -hmm. that I'm sure you've seen in Iraq. Uh, Having to speak Arabic, <laughs> even for someone whose parents are originally mm. Arabs, um, but because maybe we're used, even someone like me, because I'm used to speaking English. When you go, sometimes mm. there's a word that of you want to, yes, and you can't express yourself because mm. that word's not coming to you. For someone like you, having to wear an abaya, mm. um, all these things. How do you how, how do you overcome these challenges? And do you see them as challenges? Do you see them? Do you even think about these things or
1: Yeah. No, they are challenges, aren't they? And um, you're right. You've really comprehensively, you know, listed out lots of the challenges of working in Iraq. The language barrier definitely is a big one. I'm so grateful. When we were children, Mm. my parents had this rule that every time you spoke English at home, you had to pay a fine. Mm, and it I've was tried that. So, and doesn't work. <laughs> it was so annoying. But right now, I am so grateful to them mm. for having you know, put their foot down and insisted on the Arabic language. Because even though my Arabic is not where I would want it to be, Alhamdulillah, it's at a level where I can communicate and can you know, work professionally. And it was really hard in the beginning, but slowly, slowly it improved. So the Arabic is a, is a barrier, but one that's been easily overcome, inshallah. In terms of um, the culture difference, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think that whenever I'm in the UK, I feel very, very Iraqi. Mm. But then when I go to Iraq, <laughs> you I suddenly feel, very feel Brit- really, really British. Mm. And so there's definitely a bit of a culture, um, uh, you know, difference there. And in the beginning, that used to really pain me, like, It Mm. used to really upset me. I used to feel so lost, you know, I'd Mm. feel like I don't belong anywhere. You know, my mum's Lebanese, my dad's Iraqi, my husband's Bahraini. Uh, You know, I live in the UK. I work in Iraq. It it all felt really, really confusing until I suddenly had this realization one day that I don't need to belong to one place. Mm. And it's okay to be a mix and it's okay to be messy. And in fact, my job is to be a bridge, you know, it's to be a bridge between places rather than belonging to one place completely. And so when I'm in the UK, I feel like I'm able to explain and contextualize a lot of things about the Middle East or Iraq to others. And similarly, when I'm in Iraq, I feel like I'm able to get lots of the good practice and, you know, gold standards and share it over there. So I feel like I'm a bridge rather than Having to be one thing, and I'm at peace with that now.
0: Because people struggle with identity a lot, yeah. especially you know, someone you've said your father's Iraqi, your mother's Lebanese, you're married to a Bahraini, yeah. you go to Iraq you live in the yeah. UK. It's like, and then so so it is very difficult. I'm I'm guessing it's even more difficult for the for those now growing up in their teenage years. Mm. And sometimes I feel people don't know which identity they, they belong they, or they have and then maybe at school they have one and then in the mosque they have one mm, and at home they have one and I'm difficult. sure that affects someone's mental health so it's nice that you've put it that you don't have to belong to one
1: yeah as in I think there is something there about acceptance and mm. also about just owning the fact that you're different okay. you know so much of the time we want to fit in it feels comfortable, doesn't it? When you fit into a box really, really um, neatly. But we just need to be okay with the fact that we're, we're different sometimes. We need to be okay with the fact that... One of my friends once um, said that her mum, whenever, whenever she'd ask her mum something, her mum would say, because we're weird. Okay? Because mm. we're weird. And I thought that was a really interesting and unusual thing to say. But now I reflect on it and I think, goodness... I'm you know, weird. <laughs> I'm weird. Fantastic. <laughs> in way. Yeah. yeah. And now that I've accepted that I'm weird and I no longer feel like I need to fit in, I can now just get on with, you know, the business of being me and doing my best, you know, rather than always having to fit in because there's no way that you're, that any of us are ever going to fit in completely because we are part of this, you know, identity that's very different and we've got lots and lots of, um, you know we've got lots of things going on at the same time. So we're never going to fit into a box. And I think we need to just appreciate that as one of our superpowers, rather than being a hindrance.
0: Uh, the male dominated world that we live in oh, yeah. is big in Iraq. Oh, it's yeah. a male dominated environment, especially you mentioned the cities of Najaf and Um uh, where this is maybe more visible. Um, how do you, uh, with your job, face this challenge? And is it, a, is it maybe one of the toughest challenges?
1: Mm, wow, big question as well. So, yeah, no, it's a really big question. So I'd say that it, it is true and it is correct that, in fact, females make up a really large percentage of the workforce in Iraq. But when you get to the more senior levels of management, in the same way as, you know, in the UK, UK, it is very male dominated. Mm -hmm. And there have been multiple instances, multiple, multiple times where I will be the only female in the room or, you know, the only female in particular situation. And then you have a few other layers to add on to it, such as you mentioned about the abaya. So, yeah, Mm. in the UK, I don't wear an abaya, but in Iraq, I do always uh, wear a head abaya. Um, And then you've got particular also, you know, social um, rules and unspoken rules about gender interactions in Iraq that are different to the UK. So, yeah, it is it does. In the beginning, it definitely made life a bit more challenging and that I was always super conscious about what I was wearing, how I looked, how I was talking. You know, it made me feel really, really super conscious about all of that. But I have definitely adapted to it. And and um, grown to embrace it. Mm -hmm. So the abaya in the beginning. In the beginning, I was I was not too pleased about having to wear an abaya. It's a very the head abaya. Just so people
0: because a lot of people think it's just that one. No, not the proper on your head. Yeah, 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 on your head abaya,
1: which is. Quite a tricky piece of clothing to wear. I'm sure. And I remember the first time I went to Iraq, every time I would get out of the car, I would accidentally shuffle up. Up my abaya. So it's not the easiest piece of um of clothing to wear. Then I thought, Amina, you need to make a decision right now, okay? Either I make a big deal about wearing that abaya. And I, you know, I insist that, you know, I wear hijab, I'm pleased with my hijab, I'm, you know, satisfied with my hijab and this is how I want to dress. And then the focus of others will be on my difference and the focus of others will be on the fact that I'm, I look different to them. Or again, I accept that this is the uniform, this is the dress code, let me dress the same way as everyone else, let, my, let how I look mean nothing to anyone so that they can focus on what I'm saying. OK. And interestingly, one of the things that I realized was like, hey, I work in the NHS when I'm in the UK and the NHS has its own rules and regulations, you know, sure. I can't go to work wearing a, a buyer if I wanted to in the NHS. I couldn't wear, um, you know, you couldn't wear jewellery. You can't wear rings. You have to wear particular things. You can't wear anything that has slogans on it. So the NHS is an organization. It has its own philosophy and it imposes its own uniform. And in the same way, other organizations, including those in Iraq, are allowed to have their philosophy, impose their uniform and have their rules. And I'm, ple- you know, I'm happy to go with that. I want, I really think that I want the focus to be on what I'm doing and saying, and anything that causes friction, you know, if it's something, that, um, if it's something that's not big, let, let it go. And the funny thing is, I actually now have got to the stage where I actually love wearing the abaya. abaya. I actually really, really love wearing it. I love how it makes me feel. It makes me feel, you know, it makes me feel proud. It makes me feel really, um, you know, connected to my faith. And it makes me feel powerful in a funny way.
0: Yeah. There's, there's certain roles, I think, as well. Like, for example, um, I'm sure you'll have to speak to maybe certain widows. Um, maybe even certain children feel maybe more comfortable speaking to to a female rather than a male. So, so with your role, I think it's very important that you are there for those widows, maybe because maybe they don't feel comfortable speaking to to the males in Iraq. So, so that even though it is a male dominated environment in Iraq, I think more Iraqis, especially at organizations like Al. Al Ain, which are very forward-thinking, realize the importance of women in these in these roles rather than um, than having men who maybe won't get the best job done with what they're doing. I don't know if you if, if you agree. Yeah, no,
1: I know what you mean. Definitely, there are certainly some roles in the organization which women completely excel at and I'm do sure. really really well in. So, for example, our therapists in Al Ain. Um, are majority female, and yes, most of the of course, you know most of the widowed mothers do feel much much more comfortable opening up and speaking about their issues to another female, to someone who maybe has that understanding of their life experience, and to someone who they feel much m- more comfortable with. So there are some roles which um, you know are very suited. But in general, as an organization, Al Ain is actually, I think, you know, a huge employer of women. I don't remember the exact percentage, but it's a large, you know, a large percentage of the workforce are females. And interestingly, a good number of the workforce are widowed mothers themselves, who were previously supported by Al Ain and are now working as Al Ain staff supporting others. So yeah, that's a a real point of pride.
0: With with Al Al Ain working, I mean, I filmed... uh, a documentary for the marjaiya and mm. part of that was something about al-ain mm. and i met some of the d- families and then i i done interviews with 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 the director of al-ain and heard some stories and it you know it really affects you when mm. you and i've done maybe other documentaries also for where you see the 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 the, the poverty in iraq mm. or you see you meet the orphans mm. or you mm. meet the widows and it really does affect you and i'd say i maybe spent a few weeks doing that and that's it but it's always something that affects me but when you this is your now your job i'm sure you've heard stories that have affected you before i ask you about any of those stories how do you actually manage your own mental health yeah knowing that you know sometimes you meet stories that i'm sure you need time to recover let alone the person who's who's gone through that absolutely how do you actually manage your mental health and not you know become numb to these maybe Mm. these these stories
1: you know that's such a crucial point isn't it for various reasons like it's very known that people who work in very caring compassionate roles and also people who are continuously exposed to other people's stories of trauma okay can be affected and there are different levels that they can be affected at you know you've got burnout, you've got compassion fatigue, and even at the highest levels you've got vicarious trauma, which is when someone is traumatized and will then experience the real symptoms of trauma as a result of having listened to these trauma stories again and again. And this is one of the points that I really focus on with our staff in Al Ain, both in Hikayati and the Luminous Stars, to really ensure that they are looking after their own mental health as well. So ensuring that you've got that downtime, ensuring that you've got that psychologically safe space to debrief with your colleagues when needed, ensuring that you have supervision and someone to talk to about those cases, and then being really aware of the early signs that you're starting to burn out or starting to suffer, and then getting help for yourself. So that's really important. You know, we wouldn't be human if we weren't, you know, affected by these stories, Mm. but also we're not going to be helpful if we're completely burnt out Mm. and uh, have nothing more to offer. You know, it's a really, really um, stereotypical example, cliche used too much. But, you know, they always say that on the aeroplane, you put your oxygen mask on before you put the mm. oxygen mask for anyone else. Mm. And it's true. If I'm tired and burnt out and upset and completely exhausted, I'm not going to be able to help anyone. So looking after myself as a, as a you know, as a carer or as someone in a compassionate role is looking after my patients and so it it has to be prioritized
0: are there any stories that have affected you or if can you share any of these stories of course
1: of course there are stories that have affected me you know you mentioned it yourself but you can't help but feel a certain amount of guilt or you know um Why me? When you realize just how privileged our lives are, you know, just Mm. how lucky our children are in comparison to the families who we meet every single day. I think one of the stories that, um, you know, always has affects me most is the first time I went to Al Ain. And I met the, um, they said that today you're going to do some interviews with widowed mothers. And I was sitting down, you know, preparing to interview the first widowed mother that was going to come in and see me. And for some reason, I, I was probably about 30 at the time, no, like 28 at the time. And I thought that like a 50 year old woman was going to come in, you know, like a very old woman, a widow. That's the image you have in your mind. And the girl that walked in was 19 years old. You know, she was about a decade younger than me. And she had already been widowed. She already had children from her relationship. And as far as her family and her local society were concerned, her life was over at the age of 19. You know, and she had her, her daughter with her and her daughter was very nicely dressed she was wearing a really really fancy little dress and so i asked her you know just to break the ice you know oh that's such a lovely dress like how co- you know how comes you're so nicely dressed today like are you going somewhere and she said no the reason i uh, the reason she's so nicely dressed is because she, I'm only allowed to see my daughter once a month. So the daughter had, uh, was living with the um, you know, deceased father's family and they would only let her see her daughter once a month, which was on the day that they would come to El Ain to collect their, their, um, you know, their, their aid. And so the daughter would always dress up really nicely to come and see her mum on that one day a month. And, you know, I, I had to apologize. I was like, oh, I just need to go to the toilet. And I went out and I, you know, I burst into tears. I just the thought that this, this girl who was so much younger than me was going through so much. Um, yeah. And I mean, since then, you hear more and more stories. They do affect you. But I always remind myself and I always remind, um, you know, the staff that I work with as well, that we are we are the helpers in this situation, you know, this is their life and it's, it's very upsetting. And it's so unfortunate, you know, that they have been through so much and they've had such hardship, but always remember that you are there to help, you know, so your role is of, you know, your role is one that's bringing a little bit of light into their life. And so, Focus on that. Focus on what you can do. You know, focus on what you can control. Focus on what you can change, and there will be lots of things that we can't change, and that's where you know, the greater organisation comes in, or dua, or just you know, keeping them in mind and holding them in our hearts and hoping that things do improve.
0: That light that you're providing these orphans or these widows is that what drives you? Is that the passion that? Let's you continue doing what you're doing.
1: Um, when you said that, for some reason, I felt really uncomfortable. So, like, yes, I may be, you know, our work may be providing some light, but an honest truth, there they are providing so much light to my life. You know, like the, I think the just the blessings and the barakah and the the privilege and the honor of serving. Um, far outweighs any benefit that that I may be giving them. In terms of motivation, I don't know what it is. I think it's you, know, it, you alluded it to it yourself. Sometimes you just get bitten by this bug, and you just you know you, there are some organisations that you work with, or some work that you do that really gets you you know hyped up, gets you excited, and it provides you with energy. And that's definitely what um, my work in, in in Iraq has done for me. I think for a very long time I felt a bit lost, you know. I told you I was first in pediatrics, and then I moved to GP training, and I had this whole identity thing about Iraq and Lebanon and Bahrain and, and etc. And I think when I found this work, it gave me so much purpose, you know. It gave me such a sense of purpose that I really feel very lucky to be doing my dream job.
0: Can you see your life without a line? No. Can you imagine your life without a line?
1: No. I don't think I can. That's such a funny thing to say. But because I told you, like, it takes up such a large part of my life. It takes up a large part of my husband's life. And it's been with us since our children were born. So it's very much a part of our family. I was actually, I was, I was looking at a furniture shop um, Yesterday, and then I, s- I laughed because I realized I've actually decorated my house in blue and yellow. Which the um- Al Ain colors. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> that was subconscious though.
0: It's your, is your house like an Al Ain sadaqa box with the glass, yeah, the yeah. blue and yellow? Yeah, we live inside yellow. it. Yeah, we
1: come in and out through that little <laughs> flap every morning. Yeah. How, other than
0: talking of sadaqa boxes now that I, I mentioned, it. other than people using those sadaqa boxes and um, the app, which is very easy. I love the app. Yeah, it's al- the easiest, you know. It's very simple, but it's just so easy because sometimes you face a trial maybe or you face a test or you're going go out to do something and then you want to pay sadaqah. And maybe in Iraq, it's much easier. I always say this to, yeah. to, to my family in Iraq. I say, you know, for you to pay sadaqah, it's really easy. You just you're driving and then you'll see a beggar and you'll give him sadaqah. And, and my, my one of my favorite hadiths is sadaqah tadfa'u al Sadaqah removes any Calamity. calamities that you might more, be yeah. be facing. So so you can do that more easy. And I thought, you know, in London it's very difficult, you know, we don't have any you'd have to find a box. And then when the app started, it's so easy. Come especially if you have Apple Pay on your phone, you can literally yeah. double click and then and then and then you give Sadaqa. Uh, and of course with regards to Al Ain as uh, from my understanding, from Ayatollah Sistanis ruling, is as soon as you pay that sadaqah, it it's counts, yeah. ma- ma- counts as a sadaqah that has been, has been paid. Other than paying sadaqah, how can people maybe get involved with the line?
1: Yes. Oh my goodness. There are so many different ways to get involved. So, you know, part of it, as you said, is in, in the fundraising arm. So, be it Be it your homes, be it, um, you know, setting up fundraising campaigns, uh, getting involved. The other way, which is, you know, probably the biggest way is sponsoring a child, Mm. sponsoring one of the children of Al Ain. That's a really beautiful thing to be able to do. Um, sponsorship is set at an amount which means that it covers the child's basic necessities so it really does meet the sort of requirements to be a full kafala or sponsorship and that's a really nice thing to be able to do you know to just feel like you are we said we're so privileged we're so you know we're so lucky to be living such nice lives and to think that you're able to provide for another child as well is a really wonderful thing And then, of course, there's volunteering in all different roles within Al Ain and working with Al Ain. I mean, Al Ain's recruiting at the moment. They're always recruiting. They're always looking for, you know, talent within our communities and being a part of of the family and being able to have a career which serves you for your, you know, for your dunya and your akhirah at the same time is such a wonderful um, opportunity if people want to take it up. So there are lots of different ways to get involved. And... And I'm always really happy to, you know, host people at the office, show them around, give them presentations, get them to know more about the work that um they do. So definitely get
0: involved. Yeah. I think the sponsor sponsoring an orphan is, is, is the is the least someone can do in here living in the West with all the privileges that we have. I believe it's only around fifty. Yeah, I think it's fifty five pounds £55 a month for an orphan. And there's so many narrations from our, from our Prophet about how, how much reward you get. Absolutely. The famous one being Rasulullah saying, you know, I'm a kafir al Me and the sponsor of an orphan are like this in paradise. So, you know, there's, and I could go on, and <laughs> do a whole um, lecture on sponsoring an orphan. So that's the least I think people can do. And I've always said it's, I, I feel it's, it's I w- I'm obviously, I'm not giving a ruling, but it's close to being wajib, especially <laughs> Can because. We quote the- you on that? No, 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 don't please. <laughs> but, you know, it's close to being Guajib because of how many orphans there are in Iraq. Yeah. Um, so and I'm so hoping-
1: many are awaiting sponsorship. Wow. Know? Yeah, so many are awaiting sponsorship. So, Al Ain currently has something like 76,000 orphan children on, on its books. How many? 76,000. I know I always call them orphan children because I always want to really focus on the fact that they are children, Children. you know, they're children. And um, uh, a number of them are privately sponsored, i.e. people are sponsoring, giving an amount every month, but a a large number of them have not yet got to sponsor. And so they receive money which is collected from the sadaqa Sadaqa boxes boxes. or from the marja'iyah directly. And so being able to sponsor those children means that funds are freed up to sponsor even more and to expand the work even more so sponsorship is a really important I think thing a to a story
0: do. you could share with us about an orphan you met
1: an orphan I've met an orphan child that I've met this
0: is gonna this is gonna get everyone to sign up after they hear this story Ooh. to sponsor an orphan oh okay so, the so story. this
1: is a big one then yeah I need to think about this one You're okay
0: I'm sure there's a lot
1: there are lots um, this is one of the, this is one of the, uh, children that recently attended the Hikayati program, mm-hmm. just about a month to six weeks ago, a young boy, he's about 12 years old. He, um, was orphaned. He's uh, one of the sons of the family. And so, and he dropped out of school very, very early. And he decided to start working, washing dishes in a restaurant in Iraq. To, to, and, you know, earning pennies every day, washing dishes in a restaurant in Iraq, um, We heard her story and we thought, you know, it's such a such, it's such a loss of an opportunity when a child leaves school. So we're really focusing with the Hikaiti program on um, the children who've left mm. school. So we invited him. He came along, attended our Hikaiti programs. And then a few weeks later, we got a letter from his mom. And she said that, You know, he had been washing the dishes in the restaurant for a few years, I think. And the owner of the restaurant would always, you know, would always swear at him, would always use really foul language with him, would really humiliate him at all times, you know. And this boy had been living with that and accepting that and and doing that. And then when he attended the Hakayati program and he attended our sessions on like confidence and resilience building and self-esteem, he went and he handed in his resignation to the restaurant owner. And he said, I have f- discovered that I deserve to be treated better than this. And his mom had written that in her letter. And he actually left. Wow. And now he's one of the children that's interested in going back to school. Amazing. We've actually got out of 20 children that attended our last Hakaiti program, 17 have expressed an interest in going back to Amazing. school. And just to think that, you know, think about it. For a 12-year-old boy to have dropped out of school and be washing dishes, imagine what the tangent for his life is. You know, Imagine what his journey is. He's going to always be on a really low wage. He's probably going to get married, have many children who he may not be able to support very well. They're probably not going to go to school. You've then just got this generation upon generation of poverty, of trauma, you know, of all this intergenerational difficulty that's being passed from one to the other, okay? Now, now just focus on the fact that this boy has realized that he deserves to be treated better. He's going to go back to school with that motivation. He's going to, inshallah, graduate from school, be able to get a better job. He's going to be able to make better life choices. When he has children, he's going to encourage them about education. Mm. And suddenly you've got a whole family tree whose lives have changed because you supported or sponsored that one orphan child in the beginning. And that's why it's so important because poverty is a cycle and sponsorship breaks that cycle. Mm. You know, sponsorship breaks that cycle because it's not just financial sponsorship. You know, as you know, with an Ein sponsorship, you get the money, but you also get, so you'll get all the basic things like money and food and clothing and housing support if you need it, but you also get the, mental health support you also get access to the personal development hakiety programs you also get educational support if you need it so it's a full package which aims to be life changing
0: how important is the mental health side of the sponsorship not just the because now i see what, why you have a passion for yeah child mental health yeah which again you know i, I we started this conversation by saying mental health there's a stigma around it we need to create a change, which Alhamdulillah, you're doing, with regards to mental health being as a topic being discussed, being addressed. And uh, the last few years, that has been taking place generally. Uh, you see it more on, on social media, on the news, people are talking about it more. And then even within our communities. But then you have child mental health, which is something that again has a bigger stigma mm. on. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm not just talking about Iraq, I'm just to, I'm to yeah, here as well, of course, uh, with the rise of um, anxiety, depression, you know, stuff like autism as well mm. that affects children. Um, so I see where, where, why you have an interest for this because of these stories. But how important is child mental health with regards to the sponsorship not being yeah. just financial?
1: You know, interestingly, I met with the CEO of Al Ain Airaq a few months ago, and he said that he is coming gradually to a real realization and a real sort of belief, qana'a, that mental health is the most important service that Al Ain needs to provide. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because you can give someone food and clothing and accommodation and everything. If they are depressed or if they're anxious, they're not going to feel any of the joy or pleasure of any of that, right? It's like having gloomy specks on the the world looks like a dark place, no matter what's happening. Okay, so mental health is prime; it's fundamentally important, and it's you know that I, you know that's part of the reason why the recent campaigns have focused on these luminous star centers and trying to expand them so that we make sure that mental health support reaches the most remote, most, you know, underserved areas in Iraq as well.
0: I'm sure, you know, because of conflict, -conflict, post-conflict, post-ISIS, there's more trauma uh, in Iraq than here in the UK, obviously. But, you know, child mental health affects, affects, you know, all children, wherever they may be. How can a parent spot mental health difficulties in their children? Are there any signs that they should look out for? yeah. And I'm guessing because if they look out for these signs and the child uh, is at a young age, maybe there's more solutions rather than them growing up. And then, la samahallah, God forbid, it leading to something maybe more serious.
1: Yeah. So 50% of mental health issues start before the age of 14. And so you're absolutely right. Wow. The early detection, early recognition is really, really, really important. Okay. Because there's always more of a chance to do something about it if it's spotted earlier. Mm -hmm. So the signs to watch out for are, you know, things like a change in a child's behavior, you know, a child who was confident and chatty and loud, who's suddenly become a bit more withdrawn, or in fact, a child who was really shy, who's now, who seems to have lost their inhibitions. Um, Difficulties with sleep, difficulties with eating. Lots of children, um, children sometimes find it hard to express their emotions. And so their feelings can sometimes come out in physical symptoms like Mm. constant headaches, constant stomach aches, um, a drop in a child's school performance or not wanting to go to school or losing interest in the things that they usually found fun you know if they used to go to football club or karate and they're suddenly not wanting to go anymore any of these are signs that something may be going on and it's always really important to be curious and to try and work out why and to have that sort of really open relationship with our children where we can talk to them and explore and ask them and obviously also an open relationship with the school school is where our children spend eight hours a day and so getting the opinion of the teachers as well about how they're doing in school is really important
0: are there are there sorry to interrupt are there Um. ways that we can that parents can can do to or methods that they that can nurture a child's mental health
1: Mm. Mm.
0: what can a parent do and when do they start uh, you know because i always say You mentioned something, a child finds it difficult to express their feelings. Mm. And sometimes, again, I'll use our communities as an example and maybe previous generations, because if you did express your feelings, you might be shut down. Mm. So therefore, you're always scared to express your Mm. feelings. And then if you keep them inside, this could obviously have an effect on your mental Mm. health. A child, I feel, needs to feel safe not just uh, physically safe of course, of course but emotionally Emotions, safe uh, yeah, absolutely. to express their feelings without being judged and also maybe express uh, their feelings and still be loved mm, because sometimes you can express your feelings and then you're going to be judged and and you feel obviously not no parent hates his children but you feel you're being you're you're, you're being judged and mm. maybe you feel you might be less loved because of those yeah. feelings that you have, whether you're sad or angry or upset. So they need to feel you know safe to express those feelings. Think. So how can we nurture a child's mental health?
1: You know, you've said it all. You've said it all already. You know, so much. I always say life is like a roller coaster. Definitely. You know, you go up, you go down, you go upside down. If you think about it, roller coasters are actually super dangerous. You're on a metal chair on a metal track going at like 60 miles an hour. Mm. But actually you enjoy it. Why? Because you've got a seatbelt. Yeah. Life is like a roller coaster and a parent is like a seatbelt. If your parent can hold you, if your parent can listen to you and stay loving you and caring for you and maintain what you said, that non-judgmental approach, even when you're saying things that might be difficult, you will survive that roller coaster of life. You will even enjoy it. It's all about having that nurturing, open, warm relationship with our children which isn't always easy to do because it hasn't always been role-modeled to us in previous generations, as you mentioned. Mm. You know, emotions, for many of our parents who, are, you know, who were immigrants, who came in, in, in times of real difficulty, emotions were a luxury they couldn't always afford to have. And so it's not always, it's not always been role-modeled to us, but this is our chance to change this. And I think part of it also is about what we call emotion coaching. So it's okay to express your emotions to your child as well and to mm. demonstrate to them how to manage it. So I'll have times when I've come home from work, let's say, and I'm really really stressed or had I've had a bad day and I'll say, you know, I feel a bit wound up. I feel like I've had a really really heavy day, guys. Can I can you just give me 15 minutes? I just want to spend a bit of time by myself, you know, wash my face, just sit in quiet for a bit. I'm going to refill my battery. My battery is low now. I Mm. need to refill my Mm. battery so that I can come and give you some energy. Okay. And that teaches them that it's okay for them to do that when they need to. So yeah, part of it is about emotion coaching, having that really open relationship. And you know, they say you have to care about the small things. So they tell you about the big things. Mm. Like I've spent the whole morning talking about puppets, you know, I don't know, there's that puppet toy. There are these toys that children play with called puppets okay. and they practice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know yeah, them. Yeah. yeah, the ones that you eat yeah. I have zero interest in puppets, mm. but my daughter is currently obsessed with puppets. Mm. So when she talks about them, I need to show some interest.
0: Genuine it's, interest. Genuine, genuine yeah. interest.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or at least appear to be genuine yeah. interest because if i care about the little things she talks about then she will tell me about the big things she t- you know that that you know are worrying her too so you yeah, having that relationship is key and, alhamdulillah it really seems that so much of our generation now like uh, the, the new young parents in our community are really aware of this and i'm excited to see the outcome in the next generation
0: i'm sure during pandemic generally mental health was on a you know bad mental health, was mm. on the right, and I'm sure more in children as well because you know they're they're used to, you know they need that space Absolutely. to run around and be free and be be a child. Yeah. So uh, during the pandemic, this was difficult. Yeah. Um, and a lot of parents weren't coping. A lot of children weren't coping. Um, And even Iraq, when when I think there was a period when they went into lockdown as well, it it must have been difficult. How can one overcome that challenge if, God forbid, we're faced with a situation? Again,
1: yeah. I mean, you're right that the pandemic has had a huge impact. So, um, in a large national mental health survey, they compared mental health in 2017 to mental health in 2021, and before one in ten children had oh. mental health difficulties. And now it's one in six children oh. have mental health difficulties. So it's definitely had a large impact. And you're right, we were confined. We didn't have our usual social connections. We were under a lot of pressure. There was a lot of anxiety about death and illness. Mm. And we lost our coping mechanisms. You know, like your coping mechanism might be going out with your friends or seeing your family or going to the park or or going on holiday. and. All of those things were taken away. So it's no surprise that there has been an impact. And again, I would just again say that it goes back to, you know, talking about your feelings and remembering that you're on a roller coaster. It's time to be a seatbelt now. It's time to talk about these things to ensure that, you know, I don't pass on those anxieties to my child, that I explain things to them in an age appropriate way and that I look out for the early signs that help might be needed and I access them, but also that as a parent, I access help for myself. You know, we, I said that it's so important for therapists and people in caring roles to have support similarly for parents, you know, Mm. parenting is a tough job. And you may have been, let's say, very, very anxious about the pandemic yourself and at the same time, you're trying to reassure a child and bring them through it safely. So you need that outlet to talk about your own feelings as well. And that's where having other adults, be it you know trusted friends and family, or be it professional help, is a really good idea.
0: Well, Amna, thank you very much. It's yeah. been a pleasure doing this podcast. I've really enjoyed it. I that. know you've also been nominated as a GP of the Year. Mm. Um, so well done on that um and um inshallah we wish you all the best in all the uh the the projects you're taking on i'd like to end by asking you how you balance your life with the many jobs that you have (laughs) and of course your two beautiful children um because i think that's what is difficult maybe for a lot of um youth in our community a lot of couples maybe because now because of financial issues and even before where both Mm. parents have to work and they have children and maybe sometimes do more than one job like yourself Mm. um so how do you balance your life how do you make sure you what's the word now I've, i've done the opposite where i've forgotten the english word and i know the arabic how do you you, you know, Make sure you're not. there's no, shortcomings, yeah, no shortcomings in anything that you're doing. That,
1: yeah. That's, you know, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? You know, I think everyone's struggling. Everyone's got their, uh, you know, all the balls that they're juggling. And everyone has to find their way. And I think that, you know, um, different things work for different families. And... Everyone needs to do what's right for them. And for some people that is, you know, taking time to really focus um, on their children and taking time out of work. For others, like for me, I know that working gives me energy and working makes me personally a better mother. And so it's something that I've continued to want to do. But it is tough, you know, especially as, um, you know, women, I think you're expected to work as if you have no family and be a mother and a wife as if you have no work. And there is a lot of expectation. And guess what? I'm not going to say, you know, that it's perfect. Like, yeah, there are loads of balls that are being juggled at the same time. And at, at some points, some of the balls drop. But, you know, life is messy. Life is imperfect. And we're all just trying our best. And I think, yeah, that's how it is. And I would say that my my one piece of advice is to just, it goes back, so we've gone full circle now. Mm. So go back to the beginning, which is just remember to look after yourself. Like if you're doing so much, then it's so important to fill your own cup regularly. And that's definitely something that I learned in the pandemic was really important to me. So now more than ever, I really, really, you know, prioritize time to myself, time doing the things that I care about. And ensuring, you know, that I have the, the energy and the, you know, the filled cup so that I'm able to fill other people's cups when needed.
0: Inshallah, it's always filled up. Thank you. Um, Dr. Amina, if you want to follow Dr. Amina on social media, I believe your Instagram is open. Oh, so yeah, people can uh, maybe see some of your. Do you share your your journey maybe in Iraq or your work? Yeah, I love so sharing can, my Iraq journey.
1: Especially.
0: So people can follow her, inshallah, on her Instagram. We'd like to thank you for your time, thank and you inshallah, so we'll see We've soon.
1: Really it. Thank you. Okay.